0: We are studying this afternoon, Article 30 of the Belgic Confession, the government of the church and its offices, and that article reads as follows, we believe that this true church must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in his word, namely that there must be ministers or pastors to preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments also elders and deacons who, together with the pastors, form the Council of the Church. That by these means the true religion may be preserved and the true doctrine everywhere propagated, likewise transgressors chastened and restrained by spiritual means. Also that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to their necessities. By these means everything will be carried on in the Church with good order and decency, when faithful men are chosen, according to the rule prescribed by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to Timothy. So in Articles 27, 28, and 29, we've considered various aspects of the uh, Church. In Article 27, the Confession more or less defines or describes the Church. In Article 28, it lays before us our obligation to be members of the Church, And in Article 29, it teaches us how to distinguish the true church from the false church. But now, in this article and in the two which follow, the confession teaches us the um, proper government of the church. And we should notice immediately, as we look at Article 30, that the confession is not shy to say that this uh, government of the church is something that the scriptures teach us. There are those who say today that the scriptures say little or nothing about the government of the church. But the confession says this in the very first sentence of the article, we believe that this true church must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in his word. It's not that the, the word of God gives us a church order or a constitution, uh, that we can just take and say, "This is the Constitution of the Church, but if we are willing, we can look into the scriptures and we can find the basic principles and ideas and rules which our Lord by which our Lord wants His church to be governed. the The material is there in the scriptures. We only need to pull it out and summarize it and organize it in order to learn what this government of the church looks like. So the confession teaches us then, in respect to this also, look to the word of God. Don't uh, pattern the government of the church after the government of nations or any other kinds of ideas of men, but pattern the government of the church according to the principles and practices which our Lord Jesus Christ himself has given to us in his word. Now, uh, we've seen it a number of times already in the Confession, and we see it again here that in uh, enunciating these principles for the government of the Church, as in other things, uh, Guido de Bray, the author of the Confession, uh, takes a, a very open and bold stand against the Church of Rome and puts his own life at risk. The government of the church, as described here in this article, is not how the Church of Rome was being governed in that day. And both Debray and the Roman Catholic authorities of that day knew it, and they were willing, the Roman Catholic authorities were willing to persecute him also for his confession of these biblical truths. He confessed the faith in a situation of danger to himself, and he held fast to the principle, Scripture governs our lives in the face of opposition and persecution. As we look at this article, there are especially two things we want to see in the article itself, and then one thing that we're going to add to the confessions of description of the government of the church. We want to look first at the nature of this government. That's in the first half of the article. And then we want to look at the purposes of this government. That's in the second half of the article. And for our third and concluding point, we want to look at our relationship to this government as members of the church. In our own time, we generally distinguish, I think, three forms of church government. There is the congregational form of church government, which is parallel, roughly speaking, to a democracy in political uh, the political sphere. The decisions of the rule of the church are left to the vote of the congregation. In other words, there are, ideally speaking, perhaps no authorities in the church, but The members of the church all have equal authority, and the members of the church make the decisions together, congregational church government. There is also the episcopal form of church government, and the episcopal form of church government is that form of government that we see in the Church of Rome, in the Anglican Church, in the Methodist Church, and in various other churches also throughout the world. It's a hierarchical form of government. You have lower and higher authorities. You have bishops and and archbishops, and in the Church of Rome anyway, you have cardinals, and ultimately you have the Pope himself. You have different levels of authority and and different extent of authority for these different offices. One may rule in a particular uh, narrow geographical region. The next level up may rule over several such um, men who and therefore have authority over a broader geographical region, and ultimately the highest authority would have authority over the whole church, as the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Anglican Church. But we confess here and believe, according to the scriptures, that the biblical form of church government is neither congregational nor episcopal, but what we call... Presbyterian or Reformed. It is uh, ruled by the elders. They are the ultimate authority in Christ's church. And Christ rules his church, therefore, by the elders. The elders are the ones through whom Christ, especially through whom Christ rules the church. But it's not just the elders, according to this article, and we would recognize that same thing. There are, besides the elders, the ministers or pastors, our confession takes a three-office view, and the deacons. So we want to take a few minutes to talk about each of those different offices. First of all, according to the confession, the function of the ministers or pastors is to preach the gospel and administer The sacraments. Now, the two words which the confession uses here to describe the ministers or pastors are are words which come to us from the scriptures themselves, from the New Testament scriptures. The first of those words is the word diaconos, or which is most often translated in the New Testament as minister. And when you examine the use of this word diakonos in the New Testament, you find that it has very wide application in the New Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, it's used of the servants of a king or the ministers of a king. That's one use then. That these men who serve the king, and I think what the passage is talking about is those who serve the king directly, who have various positions of authority under the king, and whose business it is to carry out the king's will, these are called ministers, or diaconos. In Romans chapter 13, verse 4, this word is used of the civil authority. They are the ministers of God, the Apostle Paul says, of the civil authorities. And they are placed there to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, this word is used even of the servants of Satan, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 5 speaks of the ministers of Satan or the servants of Satan. So you you see the breadth of the use of this word in in those uh, ways. In uh, John chapter 12 verse 26, however, we begin to get closer to the idea of this word as it applies in the church. Within the context of the church of Christ, this word does have a different meaning again. John 12 verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant or my minister will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And Christ is there obviously talking about those who believe in him, and who seek to serve him in the world. It's a title then that's applied to all the believers. They are the ministers of Christ. They are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in this regard. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, this word is used again, or a form of this word rather, is used again with respect to believers the Apostle Paul says there in Ephesians 4 verse 12 that God has given the various offices of the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That's not exactly the same word as the word, but it's a form of that word that we're talking about talking about here. All the saints are to be ministers or, if you will, deacons, to take the English translation, in some fashion. They are to be serving One another and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also clear from the scriptures that this word has a a narrower meaning than that. In uh, a number of different places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul applies this word to the preachers of the gospel. I'm going to point you just to one passage. If you're interested in others, you can look the word up in a concordance yourself. But in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, the apostle says, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So he's talking there about the preachers of the gospel, and he he takes that word diakonos and he applies it to the preachers of the gospel and he does this in a number of other ways in another of other places as well so when the confession uses this word ministers it's talking about such men as Paul and Apollos and Timothy and Titus at least at times those who preach the gospel and administer the sacraments so that's one word The other use of that word, and we'll come back to it, therefore, is that it's applied to the office of deacon, as we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But there's another word that the uh, scriptures use in connection with the uh, office of the ministry of the gospel, and that is the word which is best translated as shepherd, though it is not always translated that way, in the New Testament. You find, for example, in John chapter 10, a passage we're all very familiar with, that Christ calls himself the Good Shepherd. He is the Good Shepherd who shepherds the flock, and who gathers the flock, and feeds the flock, and cares for the flock while it's in the world. But in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, we were just looking at that passage in another connection. But in Ephesians four verse 11, this word is applied, again, I think, to those who uh, preach the gospel. Paul says in e- Ephesians 4:11, he gave himself some, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors or shepherds. And teachers, and it seems that Paul has in mind here particularly the teaching office of the church. Everything else applies there: apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers. They're all in the teaching office, and so it seems that that's the use of the word there as well. He's talking about those who preach the gospel. So that those two words then are used in the scriptures with regard to the office of teaching and preaching. And administering the sacraments as well. But we should notice, we can already notice that the word deacon applies to the office of deacon, and we're going to come back to that. This word uh, shepherd applies also to the office of elder. There's not a clear demarcation in the use of the word in the New Testament. Uh, some might even say, on the basis of this, that really there are only two offices. The, the shepherds or pastors or elders and the deacons. But Paul takes a form of this word in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, this word shepherd, and applies it to the elders of Ephesus. He says to them there in that verse. Uh, to this uh, Acts 20 verse 28, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And in second 1 Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter also uses this word with regard to the elders. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So you have those two words in the New Testament for those who preach and teach the gospel. Uh, Minister, or diakonos, and shepherd. In the second place, the confession mentions the office of elder. And uh, Paul outlines the qualifications for this office of elder in 1 Timothy 3, which we read a few minutes ago, and Titus chapter 1. The confession says that the particular function of this office is to um, uh, exercise Christian discipline, to chasten and restrain transgression. But it's clear from Acts chapter 20 and from 1 Peter 5 that the function is somewhat broader than that in the scriptures. The elders also participate in the teaching function of the church. In fact, one of the qualifications for this office, according to Paul, is that they be able to teach. And there are two words that the New Testament uses for this office. Specifically, the one that we translate elder and the other that is translated usually bishop or overseer. Presbyter, which simply means older man, and episkopos, which means overseer. These two words describe the office of elder. These are usually older men. That is men who have been wisdom in spiritual matters, and they are men who have been given by Christ's authority in the church to oversee the lives of the people of God. And we've read a couple of passages about them in 1 Peter 5 and Acts 20 as well, so we need not go back to that. And finally, we have the office of deacon. And as I said, this is that same word which is sometimes applied to the preachers of the gospel, and is applied in, in other many other settings as well. It's a, it's a word which has a broad range of applications in the New Testament. But the Apostle Paul makes clear in 1 Timothy 3 that this is a separate office of the church, 1 Timothy 3. He, he says, here are the qualifications for the office of deacon. Clearly, he's not talking about The saints in general, there in 1 Timothy 3, he would not be singling them as particular men out then as being worthy of this office or as having the qualifications for this office. He's talking about a particular office in the church. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine. That is, they must be exemplary in their way of life, and it's in Acts 6 especially that we see the function of this office of deacon. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles appointed the first seven deacons of the church so that they could care for the needs of the widows and others who were suffering some neglect because the apostles themselves were too busy to serve tables, as Peter says. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So their function is serving tables, caring for the Grecian widows in the first place, caring for the poor. That's the the purpose for which these deacons were appointed in the church. So those are the three offices that we may identify in the church. Notice too, by the way, that in Philippians 1, verse 1, the apostle Paul addresses not just the saints in the church in Philippi but the bishops and deacons to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Again, clear indication that this office of deacon stood apart from the other offices of the church. Now, a couple of more things that we should note about the Confession's teaching on this subject of the offices. It says here that these three offices together form the council of the church. These three offices together form the council of the church. And it seems to be the idea there that these men who are appointed to these offices uh, form the ruling body of the church. That each has its own particular sphere of authority, the minister uh, or pastors, uh, the teaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, the elders, the administration of Christian discipline, the deacons, the care of the poor, but that they're not to work independently of one another within the congregation. They are instead to work together. They form the council of the church, and they work together, they cooperate in their work to make sure that the needs of the congregation of the Christ, of Christ the Lord is cared for. They express the rule of Christ, each in a different way and for different areas of life, perhaps we may say, but doing that nevertheless in cooperation with each other. And the second thing we should note about what the confession says is that it speaks of this government of the church as a spiritual polity. This true church must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in his word. I think it means two things here. First of all, the confession means, I think, to distinguish this government of the church, especially from political government. And again, it's flying in the face of the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome taught, maybe still teaches for all I know, that the Pope has ultimate authority, not only in the Church, but also in the political realm. And at various times the um, Pope exercised this supposed authority that he had to bend kings to his will. To make them do what, not what they thought right before God, but what he thought right in the political realm. But what the confession is saying here is, I think, that this authority in the church is not a political authority, it's a spiritual authority. It's not an authority over nations, but it's an authority over the church. It's an authority, therefore, which does not mix with or... uh, and is not superior to the authority over that God has appointed over the state. I myself am very much in favor of Abraham Kuyper's idea of sphere sovereignty, that God has uh, appointed different authorities for us in different spheres of life. There is the political sphere, where he has given us the magistrates. There is the home, where he has given us parents and to wives he has given husbands. There is the church where he has given to us ministers, elders and deacons. And their power therefore, the power of these offices is is not the power of the sword which the magistrates exercise but is the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments and the exercise of Christian discipline. It is a spiritual rather than a political power. And because it has a spiritual character it also has a spiritual purpose, the salvation of the souls of those whom God has given to Christ. The civil magistrate has the responsibility of maintaining order in society punishing evildoers and rewarding those who do right. But ecclesiastical authorities have the responsibility of exercising the spiritual power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, not for the physical punishment of transgressors, of criminals, but for the spiritual uh, discipline of the souls of those whom God has given to Christ. To illustrate this point, we may look at, for example, a man who, let's say, has committed a particular crime, a crime of murder or a crime of theft, perhaps, would be good examples. And because he transgressed the laws of the land, he becomes answerable to the civil magistrates, and the civil magistrates um, try him and punish him appropriately according to the laws of the land. They exercise their authority over his transgression of the laws. But because he has sinned against the law of God and against others, the ecclesiastical authorities also have responsibility for him. And their responsibility is not the punishment, the physical punishment of this man, but the admonition of a sinner, the calling of the sinner to repentance. And if he will not repent, the excommunication of the sinner from the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are independent authorities in the man's life, operating in different ways for different purposes. This is a spiritual government, not an earthly or political government. So that brings us then, the purposes of this government. And the confession actually gives us quite a, a list of purposes here. I think we may distinguish five different purposes of this spiritual polity that Christ has established for the government of his church. The first thing which the confession has to say about this is that the purpose of this government is the maintenance or preservation of the true religion that is of the uh, of christianity god calls his people to live here in the world and he calls them to live as christians in the world and as witnesses for christ in this world and he calls them to practice their christianity their religion in the world And in order that they may do this, in order that they may continue the practice of their religion in the world, their proper worship of God, and their Christian life in the world, God has given these offices. In other words, he's not left each Christian to act and live independently, but he has placed his people under the authority of these different offices, so that they can fulfill the function he has given them to perform in the world, the practice of their religion. And the practice of their religion is not only the worship of God, but the living out of a Christian life before the world. God has told us then that the way that we can maintain and preserve our religion, uh, the practice of our religion, is by submitting ourselves these offices. We need the offices of the Church of Christ for that purpose. That's the first, the preservation of the true religion. The second purpose that the confession gives is the propagation of the gospel. This refers, of course, to the primary key of the kingdom, the preaching of the gospel is the primary means by which Christ opens and shuts the kingdom. It refers to the primary mark of the church, distinguishing characteristic of the church. Christ is given to the church as its primary task, the preaching of the gospel. And this is also one of the purposes of the government of the church. In fact, this preaching of the gospel belongs to the government of the church. How shall they preach? The Apostle Paul says, except they be sent. That's in Romans chapter 10. So these officers have this obligation to preach the gospel, but the confession uses that word propagation of the gospel. And I think that's an important idea here too. It's not just the preaching of the gospel within the bounds of the church. But it's the propagation of the gospel outside the church. It's the fulfillment of the call of Christ to his apostles in Matthew 28. Preach the gospel to all nations. So that's the second purpose of these offices. The propagation of the gospel. The third purpose, which the confession mentions, is the chastening and restraining of transgressions by spiritual means. We've already talked about this a little bit. This is the third mark of the church and also one of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the admonition of sinners and the excommunication of the unrepentant. And this function falls especially on the elders of the church. They have oversight of our lives. Christ has given to them authority, that is, the right to have oversight of our lives, to exercise authority with regard to us. And so he says to us, obey those who have the rule over you with reference to the elders of the church. In the fourth place, the confession speaks of relieving and comforting the poor and distressed. This is the function of the office of deacons, And I think it's it's a good thing today to emphasize that. The deacons sometimes find their work, I think, reduced pretty much to simply taking care of the financial affairs of the church, paying the salaries and maintaining the property and so on. It's all right if the deacons do that, though I don't think they are the ones that have to do it. Anyone in the church can take care of those matters. The particular function of the deacons is the care of the poor and the comforting of the sick and the troubled and the distressed. They are to see to the earthly necessities, earthly needs, earthly troubles of the saints in the church and even of those who are outside the church. I think there's one qualification that we need to recognize here especially with regard to seeing to physical needs. The Apostle Paul addresses that qualification in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 and 4. He's talking here about one class of needy people in the church, but it applies to the others as well. He says there, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. In other words, this care of the poor is, first of all, a familial obligation. And Paul will not allow into the number of the widows those who have children who can care for them. He says, honor widows who are widows indeed, that is, those who don't have children, family, to care for them. And I think the same applies to others in their physical needs. There's, first of all, a familial obligation, and if the family is not able or the family is not willing or whatever, then the deacons step in and help, of course. And their function, remember, is also a spiritual function. It's not just writing checks for those who have the need of some financial assistance, but it's bringing the Word of God and caring for the poor and distressed in the name of the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the purpose of this government is the maintenance of good order and decency in the worship and life of the church. God created us, I think we may say, to need government. When he created Eve, he made her a help suitable to Adam. Adam was her head to rule her in the name of Christ and for Christ's sake. When he gives parents children, he gives parents authority over those children. And I think this principle naturally extends to every other sphere of life. God has created us in every sphere of life to need authority in the political realm, in the ecclesiastical realm, and in the, even in the realm of work. We need to be under authority. We have a created need for authority, to the, for the maintenance of good order and decency. Sin, of course, has increased that need. Sin makes us rebellious against proper authority, and so authority needs uh, additional authority and additional power from God for the restraint and punishment of sin. But it did not create the need for authority. The need for authority existed from the very beginning. We need rules. We need regulation of our lives. We need rulers in the various spheres of our lives to maintain good order and decency in all these different spheres. And that applies to the church as well. Now, by way of closing our obligations towards this government of the church, the first obligation we may point to is the obligation to uh, play our part in a faithful way in the uh, choosing of those who are to rule in the church. You you find this in the Old Testament already. For example, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Moses is describing to the people of God there on the Boundary of the land of Canaan, the uh, appointment of the various uh, rulers of tens and rulers of hundreds and rulers of thousands that was done in the wilderness. Notice what he says there. How can I alone, he says, he told them at that time that they did this, how can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose, the people had to choose, wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, The thing which you have told us to do is good. So they had a hand in it. We find in in, uh, the appointment of various kings of Judah, not in every case, but in some cases anyway, that the people had a hand in this. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, for example, in David's uh, being appointed to be king over Israel after the death of Saul's son Ishbosheth, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were one, the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler. Over Israel, Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So the people of God in the Old Testament had a voice in the choice of some of their leaders and even of their kings. And you find the same thing happening in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 6, when the apostles discerned the need for deacons to be appointed to do some of this work of caring for the widows and so on. They didn't just appoint these seven men, but they said to the congregation of Jerusalem, choose seven men whom we may appoint. And in Acts 14, verse 23, the scriptures use a word uh, of uh, Paul's appointment of elders in the churches of uh, Asia Minor. That means basically to choose by show of hands, the head of voice in this matter. And that means that one of our responsibilities here with regard to these offices is to choose faithful men. Men who meet the qualifications which our Lord Jesus Christ himself has given. We have to know what this faithfulness means. So we have to know what kinds of things the Lord expects of these men. And we have to be able to judge whether these men can do the work faithfully that Christ has called them to do. Now, we're not always inclined, of course, because we're rebellious and wicked, to do, to appoint faithful men, to choose faithful men. As, for example, Corinthian uh, and Abiram and their followers wanted to assert themselves against Moses. And as you find also in various other places throughout the scriptures, that the people were wicked and rebellious against proper, godly, biblical authority, and they wanted different kinds of authority, different men than the ones that God would have them choose. But we have a responsibility to choose faithful men. I think another thing we should emphasize in this regard is that we should pray for the officers of the church. This should be obvious, but I think that we see too little of it. We see too little of it in our private prayers. I think we see too little little of it also in the public prayers of the church. That there is not praying for the ministers, elders, and deacons. They need our prayers. They need those prayers so that they can be faithful in the exercise of their office, so that they can receive the blessings necessary to the faithful exercise of their office. We should pray for them regularly. Paul, in numerous places in his epistles, exhorts the saints to pray for him We should be praying for all the officers of the church. And thirdly, of course, we must obey them. Christ is Lord of the church. He rules us through these offices. He administers grace and blessing to us through these offices. We must be in submission to these offices. Submitting to them is submitting to the yoke of Christ himself.
1: And it's in this way then,
0: that when the officers are faithfully performing their duties, and when the saints of God are faithfully choosing, obeying, and praying for the offices, that the church prospers in the world. We need both things to be happening. The officers to be doing faithful work, the congregation to be doing faithful submission, faithful choosing, and faithful praying for them. This is the spiritual polity which our Lord Jesus Christ Himself has established and appointed for His church. If it doesn't exist in the church, then the church will surely suffer as a result. May God bless us with his word.